One of the ways that Jesus taught uh, was in parables. So one of the first things that we need to get across is what is a parable? Um, Why did Jesus teach in parables? And, uh, of course, how do we interpret those parables? Parables is a story. Uh, John MacArthur says this, um, that Jesus' parables were ingeniously simple words with profound, simple uh, spiritual lessons. So he used just these genius words, very simple to understand, but it had a deep spiritual meaning. Jesus was a master storyteller. And as he went into these parables, um, as he taught through these parables, he, he highlighted topics such as the kingdom of God. He highlighted topics uh, such as wisdom and folly. He talks about salvation in some of his parables. He's going to talk about judgment and salvation. Uh, and he's also just going to talk about the Christian life. And so he had a various degree of topics as he spoke through these parables. But he would take everyday object lessons, everyday lessons that the people would have known of the day, and he would lay them beside um, spiritual truths to bring a deeper meaning to uh, what he was saying. So that's one reason why he spoke in parables. But we also find a good explanation of why he spoke in parables uh, in the book of Matthew. It's going to be up on the screen, so you don't have to turn there, but Look at what he says in Matthew 13. When Then the disciples came to Jesus and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered to them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And so Jesus is telling us here, I'm going to build on the truth. If, if, if I have revealed these truths to you, when I tell these parable stories, when I talk about <clears throat> the parable of the seeds, when I talk about uh, these different stories... It's only going to bring a deeper spiritual meaning to the truth that I'm trying to get across to you. However, to those who do not know the truth of what I am trying to say, it's going to, be, it's going to cause confusion. It's going to make them frustrated. Or, you know, it, it's, we're going to see even at some points the Pharisees just get frustrated with them. You're like, you're, you're full of baloney, right? That's not spiritual. I mean, that's not biblical, so don't quote me on that. But, but to those who had the truth, it would bring a deep, deeper spiritual meaning. To those who did not, it would only confuse and frustrate them. And so in essence, he was dividing the crowd. You know, the message that he was saying in these parables, honestly, if you think about the, the very uh, shallow meaning of what he is saying, anyone can get it, right? Anyone can get it. However, to those who it's hidden, the message is hidden to them, it's only going to cause division only going to cause a division amongst them. And based on how they react to what they have heard. So when he tells them a parable about the kingdom of heaven. Those, there will be some that will believe. And there will be some that not, they will not believe. And it's all based on their response to how, uh, to what they hear. One other imp- very important point. 
I just want to mention this. Jesus did not always speak in parables. It's not like the only time he ever taught, he told a story. That's not how it works. He didn't do that. So many times in the gospel, you're going to see him give a message, and it's going to be very straightforward and straight to the point. He's not going to tell a story next to it to give it a deeper meaning. Uh, If you are inclined, um, Landon did go through a sermon series in 2017 on parables. And he taught a lot of parables through that sermon series. And I tried to go through and I tried to take parables that he did not teach on in 2017. That way we can just add them to what he taught on already. And so uh, hopefully uh, I did a good job looking through those and not picking one that he's already taught on. However, it's been six or seven years. So if I did, you can forgive me later, right? So let's look at what a parable means. Uh, The word parable comes from two Greek roots. The first is para, which means beside, and balo, which means to throw or to place. So the word literally means to place alongside. It's something that you place alongside. Um, And so it's kind of like this. My favorite time of year is October, okay? Favorite time of year is October. You just get through the summer. October is when it finally starts to get below 100. And so... That's one reason. Another reason why I like the the month of October is that it's when real college football starts. And I know that that really is surprising to y'all that I would bring up college football in a sermon. The second main reason is because of a small event called Fat Bear Week in Alaska. If you do not know what Fat Bear Week is, I hope and pray that this will be a part of your yearly um, October joy that you will have in your life, okay? Let me explain to you what Fat Bear Week, because it's fantastic. Fat Bear Week. This is from their website. Fat Bear Week is a celebration of success and survival. It is a way to celebrate the resilience, the adaptability, and the strength of the Katmai's brown bears. These brown bears are matched against each other in a tournament-style competition, and online visitors can vote on the bear that is ultimately crowned the Fat Bear Week champion. Over the course of a week, realistically, it's about 10 days, virtual visitors learn more about the lives and the histories of individual bears while also gaining a greater understanding of the ecosystem through a series of live events hosted online for the world to see. So it's amazing. You literally, for 10 days straight, can get online and watch webcams of bears catching salmon. And fighting. And mama's playing with their cubs. And it's fantastic. Um, It's amazing that God has wired these bears that at a certain time of year... When the weather starts to change in Alaska, that these bears migrate to this certain river in Alaska. As the salmon are heading upstream and they feed in preparation for hibernation. Most of these bears will more than double their body weight in 10 days. I want you to just think about that for a second. Okay? More than double. Some gaining around 1,200 pounds In 10 days. And if you don't think I'm joking, 
I started watching Fat Bear Week in 2019. And in 2019, the champion was Holly. And this is the before and the after picture of Holly in 2019. Here it comes. Here we go. This is before and after. This is in about 10 to 14 days. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Y'all thought I was lying. There's no way you can gain 1,200 pounds in 10 days. Yes, you can. And y'all thought salmon was healthy. <laughs> we'll just leave it alone. <laughs> this past year, uh, the 2023 champion, this was Grazer. This is Grazer. This was his before picture. And I know he's so cute and cuddly. And this was his championship photo of him in the water uh, right before he disappeared. Um, but it's amazing. And you get to learn about these bears. You can vote on the bears, who your favorite is. Uh, some of them they don't even give names. They give numbers to. So you got, I got 727 over here that I'm voting on. And it's great. So uh, I hope that you will make this a part of your life every October as this happens. So, but it's amazing how God has wired these bears to survive. Every year. And they have these webcams set up. And it's just automatic. They show up. And they fish and they eat salmon all day. And they gain all of this weight right before they go and they hibernate. How God has wired them for these harsh winters to survive. And the story we're going to look at tonight, this evening, is a story. Ultimately, I think it's about preparation. It's ultimately a story about wealth, a parable about wealth. And we're going to talk about that towards the end, but... We're going to see a man who went into survival mode trying to make accommodations for himself when he is about to get in trouble. So let's get into it. Let's look at Luke's chapter 16, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> he also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, well, what, should I, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their homes. So summoning the master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, Well, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. He said to another, How much do I owe you? How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill, write eighty. The master commended. I want you all to key in on verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into their eternal dwelling. Let's pray this evening. God, we pray that you would open our eyes to the great truths of this text. pray that you would open our ears to hear what you have to tell us tonight. And I pray that you would make sense of this text so that we can examine our own lives 
and we can uh, align our lives with you. So, Father, I pray that you mold us by your word tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a very interesting parable. Um, Jason told me as we were talking about this text, he said he was listening to the sermon that R.C. Sproul taught on this text, and he said that uh, he was ready for this one to be over because it was a difficult one. And I was like, oh, lovely. That makes me feel a whole lot better about trying to explain what it means. But in the book of Luke here, this parable is told uh, with many other parables back to back. We're going to see Jesus. He's speaking to the disciples uh, specifically. But we're going to see at one point in one of the parables that some Pharisees are around. So they may have been here for this parable. Maybe they weren't. But we know that he's speaking to some of his disciples. And sometimes these parables are very interesting. Uh, and people, when they read these parables, um, like many of the other parables, they want to try to insert themselves into the story. Right? Am I this person? Am I that person? Am I? And we do this because we want to try to learn. We want to try to understand what the parable is telling us. So let's kind of tear it apart. First of all, we have a rich man. He has a manager who manages his stuff, his accounts. Um, this kind of reminds me of the story of Jodis, uh, Joseph and Potiphar. Um, Joseph was the overseer over all of Potiphar's stuff, and he didn't have to worry about a thing. As a matter of fact, his household thrived. It made lots of money. But unlike Joseph, this man was dishonest. Um, he cheated his master. And as the story begins, we see that the rich man is confronted with bad news regarding his wealth. He says, hey, your manager is not acting honestly towards your stuff. So he confronts his manager. What's this I hear? Bring me the books. I want to see the books, and you can no longer be the manager. And so this manager goes into survival mode. What am I going to do? And he concludes... Uh, I like where he talks about, man, I don't have the strength to dig a hole, and I'm too prideful to beg, so what am I going to do? And he comes up with a plan. And his plan is to, I'm going to make some friends on my own by lowering the debt of those who owe my master money. I'm going to lower their debt so that they'll think I'm a great guy. Um, and then Jesus says at the end of this parable, let's read it one more time, verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. You know, this parable has been a difficult parable for a lot of people to read, for, uh, for us to make sense of, because they want to take Jesus and place him in the role of the master. And they want to say, well, is Jesus commending um, Shrewdness? Is he commending this wrongdoing that's been taking place? Is he commending this dishonesty? And I'll just be the first to tell you that's not what's happening here. And Jesus is, is not the master in this story. It says that the master commended, not the Lord commended. And it also says that he commended his shrewdness, not the person. Just to put that there. But one thing is for sure. Uh, the manager had been found out. He was in trouble, and the master wanted to keep an account of what was going on. So he was going to do anything in his power to prepare for the storm that was coming up. And so let's examine uh, this dishonest 
manager and see what we can learn from this parable. First of all, we need to realize that nothing is hidden from God. You know, I did a funeral service recently. And at this funeral service, I shared a comforting passage from John chapter 14 in which Jesus is communicating with his disciples. He's trying to prepare them for him to go away, uh, to be back with the Father. And he's preparing to leave them. And he just wants to, to leave them some comforting words. He tells them, listen, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. For the most part, this passage takes a lot of heat uh, from people who do not know Jesus. They want to use this verse and say, see, this is why I don't want to become a Christian. It's too um, just absolute. That's why Christianity is offensive. It's their way or it's the highway. They're so closed-minded about uh, the way to God. And why? Because everyone in their life is going to come face-to-face someday with the reality, reality, with the fact that, number one, there is a God, and number two, you're not Him. Everyone's going to come into that reality at some point in their lives. And I guess the scary part to me is that about this parable is that uh, when you look around our world today, most people are going through life, and even maybe some of the people that you rub shoulders with, they go through life as if there's going to be no day of reckoning, no thought of what's going to happen, this day of reckoning. Uh, you know, we born, we're born, we live, we, we die, and that's it. Uh, but the Bible tells us a different story. It tells us that we are made in the image of God. It says that um, we are made... God made us, and he made us in his image, and he set inside of us uh, a moral compass. We see right and wrong in the world. We have this something inside of us that says things are not right. So this leads us to look at this situation and ask ourselves some questions. Questions like, number one, is there a God? Because if there's not a God, then we are a law all to ourselves. Right? We don't have to answer to any authority. We are our own God. And there's no moral right. There's no moral wrong. We can do as we wish if there is no God. But if there is a God, if there is a creator, if I am made by him and I am made in his image, then I fall under his rule and I fall under his authority. And if I do not live up to his standard, I may fall under his wrath, if that's the case. Which leads to the next question. If there is a God, has he revealed himself to me? Has he revealed himself to me? Romans 1 says that we are without excuse. That God has made himself known to us. Uh, and if he has not made himself uh, known to us, then we're at the same point as we were in the last point. We're a God to ourselves. We can do what we want. There's no, we don't have to answer to anyone. But if there is a God and he has revealed himself to it, it should be our life's goal, our ambition to seek out that revelation that he's given to us and do everything in our power to make our way back to him. Which that leads us to our biggest problem of all. We don't seek him. 
Romans chapter 3, up on the screen, it says this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Yes, that means you and that means me. I know it means every person that we know. Isn't that great news for us, right? Not only do we not seek after God, I would argue that we run from God as quickly as we can. So, is there a God? Has he revealed himself to me? Thirdly, is Jesus who he claimed to be? Is Jesus God? Was he just a religious teacher? Was he just a good teacher that showed up on the scene If he was just a teacher, a good moral man, uh, then maybe I can get some insight from his teaching. Maybe I don't get insight from his teaching, but I don't have to listen to it. But if he is God, and he is who he claimed to be, then he demands our attention. And what what he taught demands our obedience. And again, this leads us back to our Uh, Our state, we don't seek God, we don't understand, left to ourselves, we're in trouble. But Jesus was sent to earth. And as we look at if Jesus is God, then his death is of utmost importance to us. Because God sent his son to live a life that we were unable to, to die a death that we deserved for our sin. So that he could make a way for us. It's what 1 John 4 says. 1 John 4 uh, in verse 9 says. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world. So that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God. But that he loved us. And he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Jesus taught that we should believe in him. To have everlasting life. We should believe that he was who he claimed to be. That no one will ever have forgiveness from sins apart from Jesus Christ. I mean that's the gospel. That's why when we baptize someone. um, Every time we baptize someone we, we ask them the questions. Do you believe that you're a sinner in need of a savior? We wait for them to answer. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? And then we ask, are you trusting in Jesus alone for salvation? And are you giving your life to follow after him? That's why we ask people that when they profess, we, they profess uh, to have Jesus as their Lord before they get baptized. And so that leads us to our last question. Is there a heaven and a hell? If there's not, we don't have to worry about it, right? But if there is... We should do everything in our power to stay out of one and to get into the other, right? Um, Jesus spoke a lot about the kingdom of heaven. I'll just let you in on a little secret. Jesus spoke even more about hell. Matter of fact, Jesus spoke more about hell than any other person in the entire Bible. So I think we should probably pay attention to what he has to say because one day all wrongs will be made right. We'll all see God's way as good. And this includes his justice. Back to the original thought. Nothing is hidden from God. 
there is nothing that you can do, nothing that you can think that God doesn't know about. That part's kind of scary, isn't it? Just like Landon said this on Sunday, we can fool a whole lot of people around us. We can fool the people that we're friends with. We can fool the people that we work with. We can fool the people at church. You may even be able to fool the people in your own home. You're not fooling God. We're not. He sees everything that we do. And I think that's one of the points that we want to get from this story as we think about the shrewd manager, as we think about the dishonest manager. Nothing is hidden from God. And that leads us to the next point. It is foolish to ignore the Lord when we hear the, hear the truth of the gospel. It's foolish to ignore the Lord when we hear the truth of the gospel. The second area that the dishonest manager was faced with was the outcome of what was going to happen when everything was said and done. He was shrewd. Uh, he was dishonest. Uh, because when he was found out, he was diligent in looking out for the number one person in his life, which was himself, right? I'm going to take care of me. So when he heard the truth that he had been found out, uh, how does he respond? Not by seeking to do what's right. Not by trying to make things right with his master. He takes care of himself. He knew it was over. I love how the parable, and I already mentioned this, I love how it points out. I'm not strong enough to dig a hole, and I'm too proud to beg. So what am I going to do? And so he comes up with this plan. I'm going to make my life a little better by being even more dishonest with the very people that owe my master money. And so he goes to them, gets on the phone. And I know there's no phones back in Bible days. I'm just, this is a parable, so we can imagine, right? How much do you owe? I owe 100. Well, let's make it 50. Sweet. Right? And so, the manager is seeking to earn the favor of those who owe the master money by lowering their debt. I want you to try to wrap your brain around that for a second. You do more wrong trying to prepare for getting in trouble for doing wrong. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? But that's it, exactly what's happening here. And let me just make a side, this is just a side sermon here, a side note about the master. Okay? It would be very easy for us to miss an important detail about the master here. It would be as easy for us to assume that this guy is the good guy in the story, right? We want to assume that he's the good guy. He's the one that's being robbed, right? You're like, well, poor guy. Jesus simply refers to him in this story as the rich man. And if you consider other parables where Jesus talks about a rich man, um, he has many of them. One of them concerning meaning being the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man had all the worldly possessions, had everything that everyone wanted, and Lazarus was sitting outside of his gate begging, covered with sores, begging for just the crumbs off of his table. And then it flips. We see Lazarus in heaven, and we see the rich man in a place of torment, and he looks up and he sees Lazarus. And he's like, hey, can he dip his toe in some water and just put it on my tongue? 
Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Because he was a man who begged. And if you even think about the feet being the dirtiest thing in the world. And he's like, just give me relief from this torment that I'm in. Send someone to tell my family. The rich man was the one that ends up on the wrong side of the story in the rich man and Lazarus. Maybe, just maybe, the text does not say this, so I'm not saying the Bible says this. I'm just using my imagination for a second. Maybe this rich man commended his shrewdness because he became rich by the same means that this man was using. Just maybe. Again, I'm not saying the Bible says that. I'm just trying to use my imagination to see what's going on here. It's like, have you ever talked to an insurance agent? Some of you are like, oh, I don't want to. They have an insurance for everything. I actually called my insurance agent today and I said, what's the weirdest insurance that you sell? He goes, people buy pet insurance. Can you believe that? I'm like, bizarre. If you're, if you're one of those people, that's awesome. I'm really am happy for you. But they have an insurance for everything. House insurance, car insurance, life insurance. Most of us are probably scared to even talk to our insurance agent because we think he might try to tell us about some other insurance that we need and we just can't say no, right? We like him, so just going to buy more insurance. But people will purchase insurance for just about anything. Anything. Minus what happens to us. Our eternal destination when we die. Think about your souls for a minute. Because I'll let you in on a little secret. Someday, it's inevitable. Minus a few dudes in the Bible. Everyone in the history of history has died. Everyone. And even the ones that didn't die were taken to be with the Lord. So every person that has ever lived on earth has now come face to face with the reality that there is a God. And they aren't him, right? And so, we read about another parable found in Luke chapter 12 about the rich farmer who builds and he saves and he saves all this money and he builds bigger barns so that he can save and retire and he wanted to eat, drink, and be merry. The parable says that God says to him, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, those will, uh, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up for himself, or lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich towards God. When we come face to face with the gospel, when we come face to face with, I'm a sinner in need of a savior, that God is holy, that he sent his son to, to die in my place. When we come face to face with that truth, we have the information that we need to make that makes all the difference in the world to our outcome in life. Even our situation in life. I think the dishonest manager uh, is an example to us also. It's very foolish to ignore the gospel, but he's also an example to us because we will all meet God someday. It's your next blank there. You will all meet God someday. And this shrewd manager made provision for what he knew was coming. He saw the issue. He cared very deeply about himself. And uh, he's going to do whatever he needs to in his power to try to avoid the consequences as much as possible. So we are all faced with 
this dilemma when we are faced with the gospel. When you come to realize that there is a God who is holy, holy, holy. He's our creator. And we have turned away from him and we have sinned against him. We must do something with that information. We have to. And that should direct us to seek God in his word. And see what God has done for our salvation. And when we find it's only through Jesus uh, and the belief in what Jesus has done uh, that we are able to come face to face with God and not feel the weight of his wrath. It's only through Jesus that we have peace with God. Where he can look at us and say that he is our friend. This parable comes right before the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. One that we just mentioned. And so... All the good things that the rich man had. And Lazarus had nothing. And we see in the afterlife how it's all flipped. Everything is flipped. We see the rich man looking up from a place of torment. We see Lazarus in paradise. And likewise, this parable ends with the discussion about wealth. In the same way the other one talked about wealth, this one ends talking about wealth as well. Let's look, continue reading in verse 9. He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. The one who is dishonest with very little is also dishonest in much. If then we have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in, what, in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. You know, what an interesting way to end this parable. As he talked about the shrewdness of the manager... What an interesting way to end it. When Jesus starts this part, he says, and I tell you. And this is like your mom, and when she's about to get on to you and she snaps her finger. You're like, yeah, I better listen. Mom's trying to get my attention. That's what Jesus is trying to do here. And I tell you. Listen up. I'm about to say what I'm, the point I'm really trying to get across. So let's look at some of these. Number one. Uh, takeaways from this, this parable. Number one, you need to be prepared to meet God someday. You know, as I thought about that more and more, as I looked at my notes this, this afternoon, I really wish I would have changed that this too. You need to be prepared to meet God today. You can leave it someday if you want, or you can change it to today if you want, but we need to be prepared to meet God today. And and. In this case, Jesus is saying, make all your friends now on earth. Live it up by unrighteous wealth, whatever you need to do. Because when it fails, they will welcome you into your eternal dwelling. When the money's dried up, when it's gone, when it runs out eventually, you'll have those friends that remain. This passage reminds me of the verses at the end of Matthew 25. In which uh, describes Jesus coming in all of his glory at the end of time. And he's there with this great multitude who is coming to him. 
And the sheep are being gathered on his right. And the goats are being gathered on his left. And he welcomes his sheep. And he says, thank you. For when you saw me, you fed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was imprisoned, you came and you visited me. All of these things. He says, thank you. And the people were like, well, when did we see you? Uh, that way. When did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, see you naked and clothe you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You did it for me. In this story, the righteous use their wealth to feed the hungry, to give someone a drink, to clothe those who needed clothes, to visit the lonely, to visit the sick, to visit those who were imprisoned. And it says the wicked did none of these things. He even tells them, you saw me hungry and you didn't give me something to eat. You saw me thirsty and you didn't give me something to drink. And they're like, wait a minute. When did we see you that way and not do it? And he tells them, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you didn't do it to me. In this story, the righteous use their wealth to honor God, to do those things, to feed the hungry. You know, the word translated here for wealth is the Hebrew and the Aramaic term for wealth and possessions, which is also the exact same word when you translate it that means money. So it's saying use the things that God has given you. And so when Jesus calls out this unrighteous wealth, He's talking about not only the means by which you received your money or your wealth, but what you did with those things once you had them. Because it's important. The shrewd man here is taking care of the most important person in his life, and that's himself. And the passage says, if you're going to do this by the means of unrighteous wealth, when it fails, they may receive you into your eternal dwelling. And we as Christ followers, if you uh, are a Christian, we must realize that the opportunity we have to use our wealth to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. To see people in need and to meet those needs. You know, that's why I love our church and how generous they are about um, all the things, all the different ministries that we give through throughout the year. You're so generous in those things. Because... I think we genuinely do care about spreading the gospel and we use our wealth that God has entrusted to us to do those things. Matthew 6 tells us to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven that can't be destroyed, that can't be stolen. Invest heavenly. Next, uh, let's see, uh, you will give an account for what you have done with what God has given to you. Kind of already hit on that already. We will give an account. For what we do with what God has given to us. You know, in this parable, uh, when we think about the parable of the talents. Uh, Jesus trusted this servant with five talents. And he used them wisely. So he was entrusted with five more. And he entrusted this one with two talents. And he used them well. So he gave him some more. And then there was the guy he gave one talent to. And he was afraid to lose it. So he didn't use it. He didn't do anything with it. And he says... 
foolish. And he took it away from him and gave it to someone else who would use it. And that's ultimately, when we think about that, um, James Boy says it like this about this uh, giving an account. If the Lord were spelling out the points of the parable, we, uh, he might say at this juncture, it would be good if all people, yes, that means us as well, all people could see the issues as clearly as the dishonest steward could. You are all stewards of what God has entrusted you to. You are wasting his possessions. And one day you must give an accounting. Think how it will stand with you on the day and prepare for it. We've all been entrusted with stuff and wealth and money and time. What will you do with it? Will you waste it or will you use it for God's glory? And, and this is serious to Jesus. How we handle our finances, how we handle our money, how we handle our wealth and what God has entrusted to us is a telltale. If you think about it, it's really a show of how faithful we're going to be, be in other areas of our life. You know, my pastor back home used to always say that. Show me your checkbook and I'll show you what's most important in your life. I think a lot of truth to that. But let's look at this next point. It's very obvious. You cannot serve both God and money. I think a lot of people try to. I think a lot of people may try to pretend that they're good at it or they want to try to be good at it. But when it comes down to it, it cannot be done. You know how I know? The Bible says so, right? Uh, no servant can serve two masters. You either hate the one, be devoted to the other. Um, be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It doesn't say it, it's difficult and some can do it, but it's really hard. That's not what it says. It says you cannot serve both God and money. Boyce also says about this, he says, Either God is Lord and therefore he determines how our wealth and possessions are to be used or money is our Lord. And it will determine what place, if any, we have for God and his concerns. One or the other is going to be the master. Either God can be the master we can, or we can be loyal to something else. Um, it's a story of our self and our stuff. It's all highlighted here. And Matthew 6 goes on to tell us, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if you're storing up treasures in heaven, guess what? That's what your heart longs to serve and to, to, to put your uh, time and energy into. Sorry, I got a little tongue-tied there. Jesus wants to show us from this dishonest manager, it's that you can't serve both God and money. Uh, last takeaway, uh, we should be moved to action. You should be moved to action. This man saw the issues coming and he was moved to action, right? Might not be in the right direction, but he was moved to action. And likewise, we should be. Back to the Alaskan brown bear, right? Uh, he knew winter was coming. He knew it was on its way. Uh, and they don't, those brown bears don't sit around and be like, eh, I got two or three days, I can wait, right? They know when winter's coming and they get after those uh, salmon, and they prepare for hibernation. They don't take their time. They don't wait. They know that their time is limited there. And there's a twofold action here. First of all, if you are a Christ follower, 
If you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, I hope that this passage will be an encouragement to you, help you to uh, maybe examine your walk with the Lord. You know, where am I being faithful in these things? Where am I being unfaithful to these things? Am I stealing? Am I taking what's the Lord's and being stingy with it and not using it like I should? Uh, I hope that we're not wasting in that aspect. And so I just want this to be an encouragement to you. Just kind of examine your life. Examine. Because when we see a passage like this, it should move us to action. And I hope that our lives, we would be found faithful to God and all that he has entrusted to us. And let me just say this on a side, just a side point. I know it's about wealth. I want it to also be about your time. Right? We always say time is money, right? Time. And service. I hope that if you have a talent. I'm not talking about the money talent. I'm talking about an ability to serve. And you're not giving those to your church. You're wasting it. And I hope we would be faithful in that as well. I hope and pray that this would be an encouragement to us. It would move us towards action. To not waste what the Lord has given to us. Uh, Honor God with everything you have. Because time is short. All right, I found a really cool story this week um, about Alexander the Great. Okay, Alexander the Great, he comes to the end of his life. uh, And he has a really weird list of uh, things that he wants to happen as he is about to die. He says, I want three things to happen. And they're like, okay, let's hear it. Number one, I want the best doctors to carry my body to my place of rest. Okay? Number two, I want all of my wealth that I have acquired to be scattered on the road as I head to my place of rest. Okay? Number three, I only want my hands visible and I want the rest of my body covered. And so his generals were very confused by his request. And they were like, all right, you're going to have to give us a little more info. Why do you want these things to be? Now, as a side note, I have zero clue if these are historically accurate. But I did look it up, and it was on three different sites. And it said it, so maybe it's true. But I thought it was pretty fitting. So I hope it's true. Alexander the Great, before Jesus. So we'll just leave that at that. He says, okay, so why do you want the best doctors to carry your body? He says, in the face of death, I want everyone to know that even the best doctors in the world can't stop the inevitable. I want them to know. doesn't matter who you're surrounded by, it can't stop it. We're all going to die. And I want them to know. I had the best doctors and surgeons, and they couldn't stop it from happening. Number two, I wanted my wealth to be scattered on the road. Why? Because I want everyone to see... That everything that you acquire here on this earth, while you're on this earth, stays on this earth when you die. You can't take any of it with you. It all goes. I mean, it all stays. Number three, why do you want your hands visible dangling beside your body? That's one of the things that he said. He goes, I want everyone to know that I came into this world empty-handed and I'm leaving empty-handed. Kind of an interesting story. And he would go on to talk to them about the greatest thing that we have 
in this world is time. And mine is running out. That leads us to my last point here. If you have heard the gospel for the first time tonight. Or maybe it's the hundredth time tonight. And you have never made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. I just want to tell you that today is the day for salvation. You don't need to wait. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. You know, this shrewd manager in this story, he came face to face with an issue. And I know it's just a parable that Jesus told. But we know things like this happen. And he had to give an account for how he had lived his life. And you someday will have to give an account for what you did with Jesus. You've been shared the faith of the gospel. You've been shared the truth of the gospel tonight. And I pray that if you have not put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ, that you would do that tonight. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. God is holy. He made you and he loves you. We turned our backs on him and we sinned. And he loves you so much that he even sent his son to this earth to live the life that we could not, of perfect obedience to the Father. To die the death that we deserve, taking on our sin, so that in exchange for that, he can, we can be in a right relationship with the Father again. He did that for you and he did that for me. And I pray that if you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus for salvation, that you'll do that tonight. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we hear uh, a parable like this tonight, that, Father, it would stir us to uh, look at our own lives, to, to give an account of how, how we are living. That, Father, we would uh, want to honor you with everything that you've given us. So, Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom on how we are to live, on how we are to share the gospel, on how we are to serve you. With all that you've given us, Father, I pray that we would uh, give those things back to you in service. But Father, if there's someone that doesn't know you tonight, I pray that you would open their eyes to see you for the first time. That you would open their ears to hear the truth of who you are. And Father, I pray that you would soften their hearts so that they would respond to the gospel. We pray for that tonight. So Father, as we go through the rest of this week, I pray that our lives would be honoring and glorifying to you. And as we sing tonight, as we leave, I pray that, uh, Father, that you would do that work in our lives and that we would uh, live a life for you. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.